ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next Podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Brian Hartzer. Brian is the author of The Leadership Star, A Practical Guide to Building Engagement. He's an experienced executive and leadership mentor and served as the CEO of Westpac Banking Group from 2015 to 2019. Today, we'll be discussing his book and some of the things that readers can expect to take away and apply to their own lives. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Why did you decide to write this book? And can you share why your personal journey gives you a unique and useful perspective? It's so true. I've read so many books. And I must say, when I was thinking about doing this, I thought, does the world really need another leadership book? Um, <laughs> and and I, I did not, I had this kind of personal thing that I, I didn't want to write a book unless I felt like I had something useful to contribute. I'm not a trained leader. I uh, My first leadership experience was managing an ice cream store in Connecticut. And it went so well that one of my staff members uh, threw her apron down on the floor in front of me and screamed at me. I was a terrible leader and, and, uh, and stormed out. And so 10 years later, uh, I had spent 10 years in management consulting, partly because I didn't think I had what it took to actually manage people. But I was put into a position of running a credit card business. So I suddenly found myself managing a thousand people and thought, "Uh oh, I better figure this out. So I started paying attention to what people did that were effective. And particularly, I was interested in this topic of engagement. My my theory was that if I could get the best people in my industry to want to work for me and create an environment where they could thrive, then, then we would win. And that was a pretty simple thought, but I, I didn't know what to do about it. And we used to get the HR teams coming and telling us the results of their staffs of our staff survey. And they would say, well, you know, this year communication has gone up and, and satisfaction with compensation has gone down and so on and so forth. And, and I would say, okay, well, that's great, but what do I personally need to do? And they couldn't tell me. And that bothered me. And so I started paying attention to leaders who were getting great results on engagement and, and business success. And I started taking notes and I started applying what I learned. And um, I boiled it down into a little framework that for my own purposes, really. And then I was asked to share that with some of my colleagues because our business results and our engagement results were starting to be quite stand out. That's how it evolved. And eventually I, I was encouraged by one of my communication advisors that, you know, you really ought to write this down. It's, it's quite useful. And I started teaching it to people in a, uh, basically a PowerPoint presentation that I would teach to all my managers. And then I, I used to joke that, well, if I ever get fired, I'll, I'll write the book because I'll have time on my hands. And then a couple of years ago, I got fired and, and uh, then COVID hit. And I thought, well, this is a good time to actually write this down. I love also that the book is really practical. And I love that you appreciate and make very clear the messy reality of being in business. And you provide some honest guidance with real life examples to demonstrate how things that you suggest have played out in real life. So it's it's really grounded and again, useful. You created a framework. It's a five-pointed framework for your approach. Can you share what they are and give us the high-level description of each point? Sure. The five C's, and each of these things sounds really obvious, but there's a subtlety, which we can go into later. But care, which is about caring about the people you work for as individual human beings. Context, 
which is about the why. Uh, why does the organization exist and, and what is each individual's role in that broader purpose? Clarity, which is about do people really know what their job is, what good looks like, what great looks like, and what behavior is expected? Clearing the way, which is about proactively knocking over the barriers to people's success and celebrate, which is about recognition and creating a positive feedback loop so that people achieve and then are recognized for that achievement and then want to do more. So that that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, the book is structured in a really helpful way. The summaries at the end of each chapter and, and great stories. Care is the first point, and you say it's the most fundamental part of your framework. Why is that? Well, so many companies, the phrase human resources, I think, is is part of the problem. People uh, are taught to believe that people are like some other resource, like, you know, piles of raw steel or something. And I think that um, people have choices and particularly we're, we're lucky that, you know, obviously there's variation in this, but broadly speaking, we live in an affluent society where people have choices. And particularly at the moment, it's a it's a pretty competitive job market. So um, I think it's about making each individual feel valued and feel that their boss cares about them as an individual human being with all of the ups and downs that come with that. And I think that if people feel valued, if they feel cared about, then that old statement that people don't leave companies, they leave leaders, I think is true. And so it's a matter of how the individual leader demonstrates that care. Um, I have this little stunt that I do when I do this as a presentation, which is I ask everyone in the room to put their hand up if they care about their people. And of course, everyone sticks their hand up. And then I say, well, that's great. But um, imagine if your people were here and you weren't. And I asked them, do you think that your boss cares about you as a human being? How many of them do you think would put their hands up? And at that point, there's usually a kind of awkward giggle and um, about two thirds of the hands go up and then a few more go up because they're embarrassed. Mm. And, and I point out that, well, gee, isn't that interesting? Because you do care about your people, but they don't see it. Why is that? And it's because care is an action verb. You know, do you know their name? Do you know their partner's name? Do you know what they like about their job? Do you know what they hate about their job? Do you know what their aspirations are? Do you know how they feel they could be contributing more broadly? Do you know where they went on holiday? Uh, you know, if you're not actually asking and then taking action to help support that person's development, growth, satisfaction, then they're not going to experience you as caring about them. And, and, and that's the subtlety on this. I think the other quick point on care is that you have to care about results. So people need to know that outcomes matter and there need to be consequences in the event that, um, that they don't achieve or behave in the way that, um, that you expect. Well, that's the point I was actually going to ask about, which is a lot of people think about caring as kindness and then that makes it hard for them to provide hard feedback that they yeah. confuse caring that they don't understand that sometimes commentary is kindness that that direction and boundaries and performance assessment is kind how can they deliver some of those hard assessments caring yeah. performance in a way that still demonstrates care I'm so glad you picked up on that. That is a really great point because um, it isn't about being liked. And as you say, I mean, kindness and empathy are are really important, but equally, if you, if you genuinely have that person's interest at heart and you want them to succeed longer term, not just succeed in terms of delivering what the business needs, but succeed on their own terms, 
then it's a little bit about becoming a psychologist about how do you deliver tough messages. And the the statement that always goes around in my mind is is something a, a friend of mine once said to me, which is tell them how much you care before you tell them how much you know. And I think that if you invest in a relationship with people where they can see that you genuinely have their interest at heart, you are then giving yourself a foundation to say to them, listen, you know, I want you to be successful. And so I have to have a difficult conversation with you and and calling it out like that. I have found has been helpful. I mean, I'm probably like most people, I, I want to be liked and and I don't like awkward conversations, but I've learned over time that if, if people can see that I have their interests at heart in, in giving them the feedback, they don't tend to resent it. They tend to, to welcome it, but you do have to practice it and set it up in the right way. Right. The next point of your star is context, and it's framed in terms of the organizational purpose, what some might be familiar with the Simon Sinek TED Talk as the business why. Is yeah. context more than that? Is it, it, is it more than just the business why? Yes. So uh, the why is I'm a big fan of of the Simon Sinek work and um, definitely the the why is a good way to think about this. I think that there are two parts to it, though. Part of it is why does the organization exist? And in terms of what contribution, what I, I prefer to use the word purpose, people talk about mission and vision and so forth. I like to talk about purpose because it's about impact. And mm-hmm. so so what's the external impact that the organization is is having on its customers or its community beyond just making money? And then the second part of it is, okay, how does my individual role contribute to that? So how does what I do all day contribute to that broader purpose? Um, Now, most of my career has been in banking. And um, the the way I like to express this is when I would go and visit bank branches and introduce myself around, I'd say, well, you know, hello, what what do you do? And they'd say, well, you know, my name is Robin and, and I'm just a teller. Mm. And, and I used to conclude, I, I came to believe that if someone said to me, I'm just a teller, then the manager wasn't doing their job properly hmm. because it meant that they didn't understand that they were in fact, the face of the brand, the face of the, of the company to many customers and their attitude there, um, how they treated people was how they responded to issues was a demonstration of the brand. And so it was really important that leaders help people connect what they do all day back with that broader purpose. And in some parts of the organization, that can be very easy. In other parts of the organization, you know, say you're in finance or you're in operations or you're in technology, it might be a little harder. And I think that leaders need to think creatively about how they can connect people to that external purpose. And then ideally, as part of that, you help people see how their personal values are fulfilled by the contribution that they make. So it's a sort of three-part thing. It's how does the company contribute? How does my role contribute to that? And then how does me doing that role contribute to my own personal values and and satisfaction? Right. If an organization hasn't clearly defined its why, and, and many haven't, or they're sloppy at it, or if their why isn't really lived by senior leadership, how can middle managers and team leaders activate this element. All of this is hard if the senior leaders don't buy in, but I do think that you can exercise a level of control about your own situation, your own team. Mm. One of the best ways that I find to do this is to directly connect with external customers and see the impact of the products or services that you're, you're offering and how they're being used. Right. You note that there are three types of clarity. What are they and why are they important? 
So I separate clarity into role clarity, which is what is the purpose of this particular role and how am I expected to contribute as a member of the team? And so that makes that helps them work on the right things and work effectively with their colleagues. Then there's goal clarity, which is what outcomes specifically are expected. And the subtlety here is what does good look like and what does great look like? So that if people are really clear on that, they can know how to focus their efforts um, on the right things. And if you embed this notion of great uh, outcomes, I think of it in terms of stretch thinking, which is about how do you drive people's creativity and a growth mindset that helps spark their own desire to achieve beyond just trying to hit some goal. Um, And then the third part of clarity is behavioral clarity, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's how do you make sure people understand the organization's values and how those values translate into what behavior is expected? So role clarity, goal clarity, behavioral clarity. And the thing that I would highlight here is for many leaders, that that all seems really obvious because they've perhaps come up through the organization and they they understand these jobs and they understand what's expected. But as people are, are growing in an organization, particularly if they've come in from the outside, they may not actually know for sure what mm. what those roles are. I, I like to use the example of imagine you're at a, uh, a fashion company uh, or let's say a beauty company and you hire someone in from Uber and to be a product manager. Well, a product manager at Uber is a very different kettle of fish than a product manager at a beauty company, for example. And if you don't actually run through what's expected, you're really not setting people up for success. Very true. Very true. Well, I'm talking about uh, setting people up for success. Clear the way is the next point on your star. And I'd actually like you to describe your session D practice. It's a great example of operationalizing clear the way. And I think people should think about how they can incorporate the practice into their businesses. So can you describe it? I I just loved it. So. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Sure. So the clearing the way is about being proactive at asking people what's getting in the way of your success. The, the session D um, that you refer to is something that I developed with some input from Ram Charan, who's a, uh, a very well-regarded leadership consultant. He worked with GE back in the day and so on. Most of us have probably sat in endless presentations of PowerPoint on a project, and they devolve into interruptions and suggestions from senior people and so forth. And they're very stressful and frustrating for the project leaders and unsatisfactory, typically for the senior executives. The basic idea here is when you're doing some sort of transfer transformation or running a big project. And the fact that particularly when you're trying to do that in the context of a large organization or a matrixed organization, there can be endless different barriers that get in the way. So what we found was that by focusing on the decisions that need to be made and helping to accelerate decision-making, you can accelerate projects and improve the success of those projects. So session D stands for detail and decisions. And the idea is that you get all the senior executives who have responsibility for the things that are going to be necessary for a a project to succeed. So they might be the technology leader. It might be the marketing leader. It might be the sales leader and so on. And you have all those senior people who are the ultimate decision makers in a room. And then you bring in the project manager, but particularly the person who's actually the one on the ground having to make change happen. And they're given a very specific brief, which is, we want you to come in and talk to us about the project. Tell us what you're trying to solve, how you try to solve it. 
what issues you're facing, what decisions you've made, and very importantly, what decisions are coming up that you're going to need to make. And the rules are, we, you can talk as long as you want. You can't use PowerPoint unless you want to show us a picture of something that you're building. You, you can show us detail, but we don't want a PowerPoint presentation. We just want you to talk. And we will not interrupt you, and you can talk as long as you want. If you need to talk for two hours, you talk for two hours. And the only the only questions we will ask during that time are, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. Can you please explain that again? And so the brief to the senior people is keep your mouth shut and just listen. If you don't understand something, ask. But but you are not to interrupt. You are not to give advice. You are not to challenge. You are to listen. And so you let people tell their whole story. And then at the very end, then you start asking questions. But the, again, the brief to the senior people is the questions are, okay, so what's getting in the way? Why did you choose to do that? What decisions are coming up? What resources do you need? And, and when you frame the discussion like that, as opposed to the usual PowerPoint presentation that devolves into right. you know, a big debate, what happens is number one, all the senior people begin to understand the full complexity of what the person is dealing with rather than doing it in sound bites. And number two, they are frequently able to make decisions on the spot that can deploy resources or knock over barriers that help people get successful. Number three, they can then provide input on specific things where the people who are doing the projects might be more junior, may not be as experienced. And so they're better able to tap into the actual wisdom of the senior people around the table. And the benefit of this is to highlight things that the senior people can actually decide on and bring forward and thereby help the project team to be successful. The other benefit is that all the senior people end up with the same information. And mm -hmm. um, in, in a typical PowerPoint presentation, you know, there's interruptions and the project team doesn't get to explain the full context and so on. I find the elimination of PowerPoint is very interesting. You could have said, well, senior leadership can't say X, Y, Z thing. What is it about the people having a PowerPoint or not having a PowerPoint? How does that change their behavior? It's an important aspect of this system that you've set up. So what else does it, you know, I don't want people to say, oh, we'll do the same thing, but people can still bring their PowerPoints. So why right. is it important no. not to have the PowerPoint there? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think when you just have to talk, you tend to identify subtleties, you tend to be able to talk about the complexity of what you're dealing with in ways that PowerPoint tends to denude the, the discussion of, of detail and subtlety. Mm -hmm. and, and often in projects, there are organizational barriers, there are um, political challenges with a particular area, there might be a misalignment of budget and expectations. And I think that when people are able to just talk things through, it gives a fuller understanding of the context in which they're trying to make a change. And in a big company, it's all about that context and, and the complexity, because there, there are so many, particularly in any sort of matrix large organization, there are so many conflicting sets of priorities and the like that, that get in the way. Um, but the, the key point of this all is the insight that instead of focusing on tasks in a project, focusing on decisions that need to be made. Um, and I'll just give you one quick example that the first time we did this, we were working on a project that was about restructuring the branch network of a big British bank. 
And at the end of the presentation, where they were talking about how they were going to be redesigning these branches, I asked the question, are, are there any decisions coming up in the next little while that you're going to need to make? And almost as an afterthought, they said, oh, yes, well, in about six weeks time, we're going to bring back a business case to look at whether or not we should outsource the processing of our ATMs. And I said, oh, well, that's easy. The answer is yes. Don't write a business case because I know what the right answer is because I've done this a bunch of times. That is the answer. So mm -hmm. don't don't spend six weeks writing a business case. That's the answer. Now, just go away and negotiate a good deal. And I, I'll never forget the look on the person's face. Just, you know, kind of did not do, does not compute. What do you mean you're making that decision? Well, yes, I, I don't need to look at a business case. I know the answer to this. I've done it three times before. <laughs> so right. you know, let's get on with it. And so suddenly we took six weeks off the project just like that. Now, wow. and having uh, and having the people there to make those decisions all right there. Exactly. And and you you can hold people to account. The senior people can't hide. That's why it's really important to have all the key senior people in that room. Oh, so you can't point, especially in a matrix, it can't be, well, this one and that one didn't say and finger pointing right. or blame, sh blame shifting. It's, yeah, it's, all the decision makers are there. There's nowhere to hide. And, and you can then, if they're running into a real issue with technology, well, the room sits, all the room suddenly turns and looks at the head of technology and says, well, what are we doing about this? Right. Well, that's interesting. And also then it really lays bare where that, where are the priorities? Where are the things? What, what is getting done? Um, and how are we going to address this? Exactly. The next and final aspect of your framework is celebrate. And I think people understand, you know, recognition, but how do we make celebration effective and avoid a participation trophy kind of problem? Absolutely. Yeah. So that is the key. And I think for me, the point of celebration recognition is about emotional connection. You want to create emotional connection back to the hard work and the delivery that people have achieved. And to do that, you have to move beyond just the standard process thing of thinking it's all about pay and promotion or the trophy at the end of the year. It's about a culture of appreciation within the organization. And um, the way that I find helpful to think about this is to operate celebration or recognition at multiple levels. So yes, there is a place for formal programs, promotions, pay, end of year, end of quarter celebrations, but equally informal recognition of just thanking people and doing it on a regular basis so that there's a quick connection between what they achieved and, and, uh, and when they get recognized. It's also about peer-to-peer -peer recognition um, so, you know, not just waiting for the boss or the senior boss to hand out a certificate, but it's actually running a little program where people get in the habit of thanking each other. Um, and I think also it's important to recognize that you're sending signals with mm -hmm. whom you recognize and for what. And mm -hmm. so you might say that you want to have a service culture or a customer first culture, but if the only people who really get celebrated are the sales guys... <laughs> Um, exactly. I was just thinking you know, that. <laughs> or, or, or worse than that, um, someone that everyone knows is a jerk gets, right. because gets recognized yeah. because they're a rainmaker. Well, you're sending a really important signal about, um, about the culture of the place and, and whether you're really committed to the values. But I'll, I'll just finish on the, on the recognition. Wing. My personal favorite story of this, which I think brings it to life, um, and it's a personal one. So three months into my first job out of, out of college, uh, my father rang me up and he said, I just got a letter from your boss. And, you know, I 
sort of thought, uh oh. And he said, and he said, well, let me read it to you. And it said, dear Mr. Hartzer, I just wanted to let you know what a great job your son has done and is doing and, and how pleased we are to have him. And he's working really well and fitting in well and making great contribution on his first project. And we think he's got a great future here. Wow. And, um, and I just, you know, I was stunned and my father was of course over the moon and, uh, and it's probably a big part of why I stayed at that company for 10 years, because every time I would get frustrated and talk about quitting, my father would say, now, remember, you know, that's a really good company and da, 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 da. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I still remember that it was over 30 years ago and I still remember it. And if you think about it, it took my particular boss, probably 10 minutes to write that letter. It cost him zero. And yet it had a massive impact on me. And, and I, I just think that that's a, a great example of the importance of thinking creatively about how do you, I hate to put it like this, but push people's emotional buttons in ways that really make them feel connected to the leader, feel connected to the organization. Um, and, uh, and if you can do that, then, um, it really changes the engagement dynamic and people's willingness to stay at the company. Right. Right. And especially today during the great resignation and everybody's really focusing on how they are feeling about their workplace. This is an incredibly important part. Now, lastly, you talk not only about these five points, but also how to grow as a leader in our remaining time can you share just a little bit about your thoughts on these last two elements that help leaders sustain and grow engagement over time? Sure. Well, uh, I guess the starting point is I, I believe people can spot a phony. And so if you aren't really authentic about your own purpose, why you're there at the organization, why you care about what you're doing, why you feel connected to the organization, then, then people will see through that. And, and so I think that the two big things that I recommend for people is one is taking the time to become really clear about your own internal motivations, your strengths and weaknesses, your emotional drivers, why, what's important to you, what contribution you want to make um, so that you're clear in your own mind on that. I, I personally, before I became CEO of, of Westpac, um, I sat down and wrote a, um, a multi-page statement to myself, which I've never shared with anyone, but it was, okay, what am I really about? Why do I want to do this? What contribution do I want to make? And then I think the second part of it is building your, um, your external self-awareness, by which I mean understanding how other people see you and, and how they assess your motivations and how they react to what you do. And I think that's about being taking... Uh, 360 degree feedback and the like um, mm. very seriously. And um, when you do get feedback that is perhaps a little difficult, taking the time to understand what's going on inside your head that is leading to the behavior that other people are seeing. And, um, and so that, that kind of willingness to keep working on yourself, I think is a really important part of, of becoming an effective leader. Well, I think especially that external self-awareness is is very hard. And I think people underestimate how hard it is because they know what they, well, first of all, if they've self, hopefully people are self-reflective, that too is a step, but this external self-awareness, how other people are experiencing you can be radically different from how you are desiring to be experienced. And so true. It can be really painful. uh, But just as we will sometimes 
experience a behavior and then leap to all sorts of motivations, which we have no right doing, you know, oh, he's so defensive. Well, no, he did a behavior and this behavior is he didn't respond to the question or he asked why to the question. But that isn't necessarily defensiveness. There's there could be something else going on there and understanding you have a behavior and it's causing a perception. And what does that look like? It's so true. It's so true. Someone said to me recently, and I I just thought this was so wise, I put it in the book, which is we judge ourselves based on our motivations and we judge others based on their behavior. Yes. Yes. Right. So, so we think, you know, I'm a good guy. I'm a good, you know, whatever I'm, I'm, uh, I'm well-intended here, but other people just see the behavior and they make assumptions. And, well, they ascribe and, it. They ascribe an intention which may just not be there, right? Right. Maybe Absolutely different. We have run through time. Thank you so much for spending time with us. There will That's be a, a pleasure. Click to purchase link on the web page. Thank you so much. That's a pleasure. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rod Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.